Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we help you bridge the empathy gap to bring you a valuable new understanding of some of the most innovative ideas and trends shaping the future of business and customer experience. I am Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. And I'm Andy McMillan, CEO. And today we've invited Gina DiMatteo, a product designer from Rothy's. So thanks so much for joining us today, Gina, and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So you're currently a product designer at Rothy's, which is a D2C fashion company, probably most notably known for their shoes, but you've had an interesting journey there. So tell us a little bit about your role today at Rothy's and what you're focused on and, and maybe even how your role has evolved over time. So when I first started at Rothy's, I was in the middle of grad school and working on my master's in information design and technology. Rothy's was still super small and we didn't have we really didn't have much of a UX team at all. So coming out of school and being so kind of excited and newly discovering what user-centered design was, I saw this really awesome opportunity at Rothy's. When I was early in my stages on the UX team, it was mostly about kind of work buy-in and making sure that we saw this need to really build out a UX team and develop testing and research methods around the actual user experience. But when I was first at Rockies, it was mostly on this CX team and customer experience and taking user calls and customer tickets directly. Since then, my team has grown substantially and we're able to do all the testing and research of new site experiences before, during, and after launch, which has been really awesome. Great. So you move, it sounds like you moved from a role almost in a support capacity to something that's more focused on the overall user experience. Yeah. And uh, I, most of my early work experience has been in the retail space. I mean, early on, my first kind of dive into the working world in high school and college was all from a very customer service standpoint. So this need for customer empathy wasn't new to me. And when I joined Rothy's from a CX perspective, it felt very natural. And then after working on my master's and seeing that there is a step beyond just helping the customer as the requests come in, but rather really diving in and fixing the problem at the core was so like eye-opening and brilliant. And I was so excited. I still am very excited to do my job. And just seeing the small changes you can make that have such a big impact. I love that kind of mentality of moving from more of like almost reactive and handling requests as they come in to being just more proactive um, and forward thinking in terms of how you address the core customer need. Can you tell us a little bit about how you built the case for moving to more of that model of customer centricity at Rothy's. Sure. And as kind of an amendment of what I said earlier, we definitely had a testing team in place, but we were testing more quantitative data and looking at how, like where the user is spending a lot of time on the side and kind of heat mapping. But I really wanted to take a more direct approach. And that's where user testing came into play. I used user testing through college and coming in from, like I said, a very eager student standpoint, we had been doing a lot of case studies in school already about the need and the importance of user-centered design. 
So when I joined Rothy's and our small but mighty UX team of about one and a half, I asked if we were doing any qualitative testing. And the answer was no, met with some questions and inquisitive thinking. And uh, we, about that time we had hired on our director. And so her and I really sat and developed this case study to show how much, not only time and money and resources we could save long-term by doing the qualitative testing in the middle of our design process. So instead of typically we wait until the end of the design process to go back and test and find the bugs and QA and then go back and do the design and the engineering work again. And it's this like kind of lengthy cycle instead of just doing the testing in the middle so that our end product, most, most of the bugs and the kinks have been worked out and it's already been in front of users and they've already given a level of feedback that can shape and develop our design process, which is so incredibly valuable. And, and yeah, after posing that and showing numbers, because, you know, business minds like numbers, showing the numbers of the hours saved and hours equate to dollars and how valuable of an investment this kind of thinking is, was basically a no-brainer. Got it. So that makes a lot of sense. This is sort of like translating time saved, cost saved, and moving that to more sort of dollars and cents <laughs> helps build the case a bit more. What I love about that is it's sort of taking the intuition you build up in the customer success and support area around, this is what we keep hearing from people. Like it's, it's yeah. not, you're not coming out of the, the big data warehouse world of like, this is what all the click data tells us. You're, you're coming from the world of, this is literally what people are telling us. Can we please go do it? And then putting the business case behind turning that into uh, an initiative upstream with the product. I think that's a really interesting way to think about qualitative feedback. Absolutely. And it brings this level of like personal engagement to feedback. I mean, I also kind of equate it to gossip or a rumor mill. Like it's one thing to see something bad or positive written about you somewhere. And you're like, oh, ha, I don't know who wrote that. And like the internet anonymity, like, I don't know. That's interesting. But then hearing it out of someone's mouth, it's really, it becomes more personal and holds way more weight than just this empty anonymous number. So I, I mean, and that's the empathy side of me that connects to that with people and having to kind of translate that back into numbers <laughs> for those that speak in numbers. It's an interesting challenge. Yeah, we've, we've seen politicians do this for forever, right? Yeah. They, they tell you the big story and all the data about whatever the thing is they want to work on, and then they pause, and then they always tell you this story about a, a man or a woman they met in Iowa that, you know, told them in a rope line about this, and it kind of makes the story real and personal, yeah. and, and it drives people to do something, which is kind of what we're trying to get companies to do. So I think that, again, is a really interesting way to look at that. Yeah, stick them in the feelings. You know, it, Rothy's has been known primarily to be a D2C shoe company, but recently you have introduced some new product lines such as bags and I think masks. So can you help us understand a little bit about how empathy and listening to customers helped perhaps influence that strategy or continues to help kind of optimize those experiences? Sure. What's so interesting about our brand as a whole and how it was first developed in our site 
We launched back in about 2016, 2017 with two silhouettes. We had the flat and we had the point. And our site was built to accommodate these two silhouettes. And as we started to branch out and expand to the sneaker and the Chelsea and the lace-up, we were still we were still scaling, but with shoes in mind. So when we were given the task to tweak our site to accommodate bags, it's a very interesting dilemma because they're such different products. The features that people look for in shoes aren't available in bags and vice versa. There's no sizes in bags. So it was a it was an interesting challenge to find a way to bring these two experiences in the middle somewhere. And at the same time, also researching what what the customer and the consumer wants to see in a bag. What's important when shopping for a bag online? She's not going to be able to go in store yet and hold it or feel it or put it on her arm and see where it hangs. So making sure that we were accommodating all of her needs when purchasing a bag. I mean, this is a very personal item that women or men use every day and making sure that it is, um, that it, that they feel safe and confident in this investment they're about to make on kind of a, a blind purchase. You're buying it online. You don't really know what to expect. So we, we spent years developing the bag itself and we wanted to make sure that the same level of care and concern went into the online experience as well. So we did a lot of surveys and testing and comparing other sites and doing plenty of uh, user research to see what, what was the most important features that she'd want to see in the bag and how to create a seamless shopping experience that also would pair well with our shoe experience. We never stop testing and we're always, everything can be approved upon it just in life in general. You know, they say art is just an imitation of something before it, but you find a way to improve upon it. And I think that is true with just online experiences in general is that there will always be ways to improve and innovate. So as we launched our current bags experience, we're still doing plenty of research and finding where what she would like to see more of or what we what is less important and what we can manipulate and develop and highlight that that we aren't currently doing or looking for ways to improve through hearing that direct customer feedback she looks at our site and shops for a product you know it's interesting as you kind of explain your strategies around customer listening and feedback you're referring to she which I think is really compelling. It makes me think that um, you probably have built some shared understanding of the customer within Rothy's. So can you talk a little bit about that? Do you have personas? How do, how do the teams think about the end user? It's funny you bring that up because we do, we're in a very interesting space where our consumer and our customer are sometimes the same and sometimes they aren't the same extent. So from a digital perspective, Sometimes our user is the consumer as well and the customer, or she is on the site browsing and she's about to tell her friend or her partner what she wants. And then they're going to go on and actually shop. But then ultimately it goes back to her to be the consumer. 
So by calling our consumer her, it brings this element of personalization to this product that we're constantly being reminded that we, we ourselves are not the consumer and the user, and we're developing this product and this experience for someone other than ourselves. So by referring to her as her or she is just this reminder that, that it's someone else and that she exists and she is a real person. And we need to remember that our customer consumer and user is always our North star and that it helps to kind of pull ourselves out of the equation. That also goes to say that we have developed and worked with personas from a side experience perspective and identifying that the people that use our site are, you know, a multitude of different individuals and personas. And it creates, I mean, this is historical UX thinking that we are not the user and we are not developing the product for ourselves, but rather for these identities. And by putting a space or a name or an identity to these people, it's easier to keep ourselves out of it and remember that we're designing for someone else. And I mean, in 2020, we, a lot of our products are very ungendered. So, I mean, we have men using our tote bags and, you know, husbands, boyfriends, partners using our bags or our shoes or our masks. So we just, she is just the simplest way to make sure that we're reminded that our customer is someone else and not ourselves. I think that's thoughtful. And especially, I mean, the battleground now is that experience, right? I mean, we all have access to incredible technology to build our apps and build our sites and distribute them globally. And there are massive, massive companies you compete against that have huge, you know, online e-tailing sites and, and things like that. It is really about that experience. How do you think about that experience you're creating for her, your, your, you know, your customer on the site, your potential prospect, the you know, partner who's shopping there? Like, how do you think about creating that differentiated experience from those kind of I don't know if we call them big box retailers anymore. They're online. There's no box, but like the, the you know, the giant retailers, if you will, uh, I'm sure a big part of how you think about attracting a, you know, specific audience to your site and to your products. Absolutely. And it, it definitely is a challenge in a world of, you know, the Amazons where it's so easy for a customer to receive something in same day, 12 hours, 24 hours, and making sure that we are able to give this personalized experience and reminding our customer that a lot, I, it goes back to say that, you know, again, like our customers are North Star. We're not, we're focused on providing not just a product for her, but a, but a holistic experience and that we're telling this story about our brand and our morals and what we stand for as a company. And we're going to deliver a product that is, that is durable and sustainable and washable, but is comfortable and looks good. And really remembering that we're in this for her and all the feedback that we've received and our awesome customer base that is so enthusiastic about our product and listening and empathizing and creating this really personal, intimate experience that these big box stores will never be able to meet. So that's our advantage as 
relatively small and streamlined company that we're able to meet her and meet her needs and offer something that we know that has almost, it almost creates this feeling that it's like custom tailored to her. We've been listening, we hear what she's saying and we're meeting her with her asks and requests. In life, in, we have a lot of moms that love our shoes, our, our frontline workers, our healthcare workers, they're comfortable, they're washable. It's about creating products that work with her through her life and everything she does every day. And, and you have created as a company an audience that is a fan base. I mean, it is amazing when we mention your brand. You've, you've been a customer of ours for a little while. I know just internally, I feel like every time the, the brand is mentioned, there's a person on the call or the Zoom who has to who has to interject with, I love their shoes or I love that company. That's been true at home for me. You know, I saw just the other day, my wife had a box of Rothy's on the, you know, coming in the front door, like it just been shipped to us. It's like everyone loves the brand and, and that's not an easy thing to accomplish. And, and clearly from talking to you, you can tell it's not something you all take for granted, but how do you think about the responsibility of kind of shepherding something like that in terms of uh, as, a, as a researcher, as getting feedback from customers and, and keeping the brand the way that it's revered? Can you talk a little bit about how you view the brand and, and how you've been able to you know help foster that? Absolutely. We are so like humbled and flattered and appreciative of our I, yeah, our fans, if you will. I mean, it's weird to call them that because they are our customers and our consumers, but they're fans too. And they, it's so awesome to be a part of a brand that I'm so proud to be a part of and see our customers be as enthusiastic as well. I mean, that I don't know if this is commonplace for other brands to experience. I think some brands have a level of like a fan base around them, but I've never experienced it before. And it's awesome to see how our customers really rally around and either stand by us and promote our products and are so happy with what we launch. And then we'll receive really awesome feedback too, that will help shape either a new launch or if they want to see more of something, we are, we are in a very great place since we own our factory and our whole supply chain that we're able to really tailor our customer demand or tailor our production to meet our customer demand. So if she really likes something that's sold out, we're able to go back and create, you know, more of an item and limit waste that way. And if she, if something didn't do as well, we're able to say, okay, we'll scale it back. We don't need to create, we don't need to create more of this. So it really works. It's the symbiotic relationship between us and our customers to make sure that we're that we're meeting her demand and her requests and listening and empathizing with her customers, but also making sure that we stay true to our sustainable roots and making sure that, you know, we limit our waste and our production. And yeah, it's been, it's been an awesome ride and I, yeah, our customers are awesome. I don't, I don't know what else to say. Awesome is the only word I can think of to describe them. And I'm <laughs> embarrassed that I'm lack of words right now. I think it's great. It shows just how authentic Rothy's kind of has this, you know, real love for their customers. And I, I think it's mutual. <laughs> Your customers love you too. And that's really rare, really, really rare. So you've got these really strong brand values, which absolutely show themselves in the experience and even how you think about your customers. How did those values or, or even taking a step back and just thinking generally about the, the last, what, six months with lots of changes in the world, how did you all go about 
kind of holding on to those brand values as you started to maybe pivot or, or change some level of direction just due to the pandemic and shifts and buying behavior and all of those complex things? Sure. And I, I know I speak for many of these retail brands listening that it's been a wild ride 2020 and watching customers shopping patterns and what they prioritize or reprioritize over the products they're buying has been, we're in a, we're in a place that we've never been before and that we hope we never have to come back to. But Rothy's kind of mission statements around sustainability and comfort and durability and washability are all things that are still really important. Creating a product that can be worn over and over again and just when you think it's about to, you know, it's on its last leg, it looks bad, you pop that sucker in the wash and you have a brand new shoe. In a world where you know, incomes have been snuffed out and people aren't, they don't have the spending habits they used to have where we're able to still provide this product that is, hey, you can still look and feel awesome in a shoe that, that they're they're investments. It's not something that you're going to buy and get over and get rid of and create this same, this fast fashion waste mentality. It's, you make this investment and you have these shoes for a long period of time. And even if you get bored with the style, you can still wash it and give it away to someone and they will still be this brand new shoe, which is brilliant. And washability speaking on that has been so awesome in this time of COVID because there's this heightened sense of cleanliness and this need to this, you know, fear of the virus and germs and, this dirtiness in the outside world. So by providing shoes to, I mean, people are still out and walking around. They still need things on their feet, but now they can come home and they can have, you know, like their outside shoe or their inside shoe and they can rotate them and they can throw a pair in the wash if they've been in, you know, a grocery store or a really public place that goes with their bags as well. I don't know if you're aware, but they say that the dirtiest place is the bottom of your handbag. I equate it to like the sole of the sneaker and people come in with their bags and they're putting their bags on their kitchen tables, on their counters, on their sofa. That's so disgusting. I'm a huge germaphobe, so I'm just <laughs> always weirded out by it. But, but that's the beauty of, of our washable bags is that you come in and you can just throw the bag in the wash and you don't have to worry about it being just full of germs. In my personal life, I've been dealing with an accident and have been in and out of hospitals for a loved one. And I've been bringing my tote everywhere and all of our doctor's appointments with my tote bag. And that thing is always on the floor in hospitals and doctor's offices. And I come home and I just pop it in the wash. And I mean, I think our washability has really, really had its moment through COVID because of how unique it is to be able to throw something like a bag or a shoe into the wash that you normally wouldn't be able to. And you have this sense of security that, hey, your product is, your shoe or your bag is now germ-free and you can carry on your way. Your home is still clean and safe. And I think that's super important. I love that it's one of the, the core values of the company around sustainability, kind of having its moment. Like you didn't create a washable bag because of COVID, 
But the fact that you have a washable bag for all the reasons that that's important, it's kind of magnified because of it. I don't want to say you lucked out because it's not a luck thing. We planned this, but, but it's been awesome to see that these, these morals and the things we stand by, I mean, they really carry through no matter what has been happening. And that makes me even more proud and confident of our brand and the company that I work for that. Yeah, we, this is, this is, this is right. And that's always an awesome feeling. That's great. Yeah, I, I want to pivot us a little bit to a story that our team had shared, that you had shared with them, actually, that I thought was fascinating. And I'd love to hear you share the story with us, which was that you talked about how one of the things that you first did when you got into the UX kind of research space and kind of bringing those perspectives to the product team was around an idea to help manage the volume of support calls and really kind of change some of the cost structure and how customer support was delivered and, and draw a lot of value for customers. So could you could you maybe share that story? Sure. I believe you are referring to, I guess, the returns and the exchanges moment. So like I mentioned previously in this conversation about how shopping online can be such an interesting process and shopping for shoes online is, and this went back to before we even had physical retail locations that people could come in and try the shoe on and find a fit. They were having to, you know, purchase maybe multiple pairs or one pair at home, try them on, realize they needed to size up or size down and wanted to exchange them. So through my, this is back when I was on customer experience. So I was not yet in the UX role and I was receiving a lot of tickets from exchange questions and exchange help. And I was receiving a lot of calls and frustration from women or men that generally are self-sufficient and like to do things on their own and really don't like to call or write in if they don't have to. So there was this sense of frustration that they knew that they would be able to do this on their, uh, do this by themselves, but couldn't. And I was hearing that they were just having trouble navigating on the site to where that return or exchange information was located. And through a lot of these calls and questions, I I did a little bit more deep diving and realized that our packing slips didn't have any return information on them. And I went to my manager, who has always been super supportive, and said, hey, we have an influx in tickets from people that can do returns themselves, but are struggling to find the information to do them. I noticed like on our site, we don't really have like that information isn't very clear. It's not really in our footer anywhere. The invoice itself doesn't have information. What can we do to just solve this problem instead of always bandaging the issues as they come in? Manager heard and rallied the rest of the teams involved and made sure that we could make this more legible and clearer. We added return information on our packing slips and ticket requests for exchange help dropped substantially. That was a great small win for me who was still in school and working on customer experience and was like, wow, this is, this is UX, like right in front of me. Like, this is what it is. And what a great feeling. So I guess stemming off of that, working with my manager and kind of her, 
our director and saying, this is what I'm working on in school. And I'd really like to do more of this in my role on CX. How can I do that? And they gave me so many opportunities to noodle around on the site and find, find things that didn't maybe didn't make sense or that customers were getting stuck on and making sure that I was making notes of all these through the phone calls I was receiving. And that really empowered me as a CX associate to re- and really honed in and nurtured my interest in UX. And I, I mean, got me through grad school really. So that was <laughs> super useful and I, uh, invaluable. I imagine it's a big impact too. I mean, you think about, a uh, an online distributed retailer questions about, Hey, you know, I want to exchange this different size, different, like whatever. I mean, it's, it's no small part of why someone might contact you. So the impact of that particular flow on the customer call center and support must just be tremendous. So it's great. Yeah, it was, it was very, like I said, inspiring to say, hey, it was such a small change and such a small tweak, but look at the impact it made. And I'm like, if I if I just if I do that here on CX, imagine what I can do when it's my sole job, when that's all I'm doing. And that, yeah, that was really the fire that inspired me to stick with UX. It's awesome. So we're kind of nearing the end of our time. I wanted to jump into the lightning questions. Sure. If you're cool with that. All right, so uh, the purpose of these is just to kind of run through them pretty quickly. Don't think too hard. Don't spend too much time. Just kind of whatever kind of comes to mind. So we'll get started. So uh, let's see here. What's a book you've recently read that you would recommend to those tuning in? I, sadly, I have three. I recently read Land of Laughs, which is a fiction. It's by Jonathan Carroll, and it's the super whimsical book about I don't want to give too much away, but it's super cute. It's about this fun author that goes to write an autobiography, or sorry, not an autobiography, a biography about his favorite author. And there's bull terriers in it, and I own a bull terrier, and so I really loved that book. Also reading Wherever You Go, There You Are by John Kabat-Zinn, which is kind of a mindfulness meditation book, which is super relevant for, you know, COVID times and can kind of ground and bring a sense of security to those that need it. And then for my UX fiends, I've been just poking around in the book, The User Experience Team of One by Leah Bewey and super useful, especially for those just starting out. It gives you kind of the rundown of what UX is and how to, I mean, anything from getting org buy-in to testing processes, to research, to compiling results. It's, it's been an awesome little read. That's awesome. Yeah. That book is great, especially when you're just starting a UX practice because you end up, as you know, wearing so many hats before you move into something a little bit more formal. What's one piece of advice you would give someone trying to convince others in their organization to invest in customer-centric design? I love that convincing is needed (laughs) because it seems like such a no-brainer, especially as a UX design slash researcher. We are all in this space. like, yeah, I don't know why this is, why doesn't anyone understand this? But in a lot of places, you do need to convince others. And I think the most important part is that since we always should regard our customer as the North Star, uh, our digital product should be no different. If you have a stellar product, but no user is able to make your, you know, cool, avant-garde, illegible site, or you have 
a really difficult navigation, then what do you really have at the end of the day? So making sure that your digital product is just as usable and pleasant to use. I mean, that's how you get your customer to like really buy in and use the actual product. It's always remembering that our customer is the North Star and everything we do is for this other person. Yeah, I love that. It's, it's oftentimes easy to lose sight of that um, with everything kind of going on within an organization. And, you know, the business has goals too, but constantly keeping that user top of mind is what's critical. So you're in the UX space, customer experience space. You probably, like many of us, are constantly evaluating experiences. So what's a recent experience you had that was really great uh, and what made it so great? Yeah, it's it's funny you ask this because, I mean, lately I haven't been doing a whole lot of anything. So customer experiences have been far and few, but I did have a surprisingly pleasant experience with the United States Postal Service, which historically, I would almost relate my experience with the USPS to that of the DMV. Like I never had a good experience and it pained me anytime I had to use the post office or go into one or deal with their customer service. But this time I had about, I was shipping out nine or so packages and about half of them, the tracking stopped. And all it said was that a shipping label label was created and they were lost. So I called up USPS and I got the most awesomely empathetic agent on the phone that took down like seven tracking numbers, which I don't know if you know USPS tracking numbers, but they're about 15 digits long. And he took them all down and was empathetic. I really felt like he gave a damn about my plight <laughs> and said that he was going to escalate the issue and that he'd be in touch with me. And I spoke to his manager to kind of give him accolades for the amazing job he did. And just recently I was going through my voicemail on my phone and there was in fact a call from him saying, Hey, I just wanted to check in. I escalated your, uh, your tracking numbers to whomever, and you should see movement on them. They're looking into it. And lo and behold, about Maybe four or five days later, all my packages were delivered. They had been found. And I, I mean, that will probably go down in history. My personal history is one of the best <laughs> experiences I've had in general, not just with the post office, but in general. Yeah, that's really, really great. And, you know, that stuff doesn't happen by accident. That's very purposeful, um, which is impressive for an organization like USPS and I think Andy's had a similar experience recently with the DMV. Yeah, I shared that story at our company. I mean, we uh, not to not to inject myself in your lightning round, but uh, we had a uh, I had a story where I went to the DMV to renew my license, and I was in and out in forty minutes. And the reason was they had to rethink their entire process because of COVID and social distancing and the big rush of people after not being allowed to go to the DMV. And so in some ways they were forced to go, we have to do this entirely differently. And what they came up with worked great. I mean, they were really on top of things. It was it was not the typical DMV experience. And so it was interesting how they had kind of seized the need for change and were quite thoughtful about it. So kudos to them. That's brilliant. And to kind of piggyback on that as well, Unemployment was the thing and everyone rushed out to apply for it because so many people were getting furloughed or losing their jobs at the beginning of COVID. I was 
pulled in to do some feedback for a consultant agency that was working with EDD online and kind of because I was helping so many of my friends that were losing their jobs on how to apply for unemployment and because COVID was such a new thing and that you couldn't historically, if you, if you apply for unemployment and you have to get, you have to certify for benefits. And then, you know, one of the questions is, are you, are you looking for work or have you denied work or are you able to work? And in the middle of COVID, you can't really look for work. Let's be honest. There wasn't anything available. So EDD online had to completely go back in and append how they do their online process. And same thing, they're, they're, phone lines were just, there's no way you'd be able to get a hold of anyone. They had little appointment blocks that you would be able to call into. So I, I feel like it's not a perfect system, but I think they really stepped up and made changes in light of COVID as well. Impressive changes for sure. in uh, traditionally very bureaucratic organizations. Yeah. Okay. So last question. Uh, when you think about the future, customer experience, user experience. What are you what are you most excited about? I love watching web trends come and go. Aside from like ease of use, I'm always curious to see what the next I I say the next Helvetica will be because Helvetica had this huge moment not so long ago and I love seeing just I you know, like nowadays you'll see it's all those big like color blocky shapes that come in and like a certain font or typeface. And I just love seeing, you know, what's next? What's the next big kind of graphic design moment? Or especially what what we think or anticipate what the user is going to want. And essentially we are just telling them what they want. So I like to see all these other other brands kind of experiment and see see the newest trends. Yeah, it's almost like the you can see standards and best practices emerge. That's the as a fun part of being being part of this world. Absolutely. Yeah. One recently is um, the movement from bringing your mobile navigation to desktop. So you'll see more like hamburger style menus appear on desktop sites, and they're trying to create this bridge between the mobile and desktop navig experience. Since I think we're seeing a huge spike in site use on your mobile device rather than desktop, which I would be curious to almost go back and look to see now that everyone's at home, has it gone kind of back to desktop? Curious, you know, food for thought, but. <laughs> yeah, that is a really interesting speculation. I, I am not sure. Kind of want to dig yeah. into that now. Yeah, if it's changed back at all. I'm a huge yeah. desktop user, so I am an anomaly. But I, I think just all screen usage has gone through the roof in every form, yeah. <laughs> every device. Yes. Well, Gina, thanks so much for your time today. This has been really great to, to chat with you and learn about your experience at Rothy's, the evolution of customer experience and user experience there, and the massive impact you've had really helping bring the customer to the forefront uh, in everything that you all do. So... Great to have you on. Yeah, we'll, we'll catch up soon. And thanks for tuning in to the Human Insight Podcast. Want to keep the conversation going? You can visit our podcast hub, usertesting.com slash podcast, and check out past episodes. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, so you never miss a good episode. And if you enjoyed our show today, please tell a friend or leave us a rating on iTunes.